You are listening to iFanboy's Talksplode with Ron Mars. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream to the seat with the clearest view. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com. This episode we are talking to Ron Mars, longtime comic book writer, currently coming off a run on Witchblade, uh, but continuing with Magdalena and Artifacts over at Top Cow. He's got a creator-owned series at Image called Shinku. Recently, Mars worked for DC Comics, writing the Voodoo series in their relaunch. And prior to that, he had a long career working for Marvel Comics and DC Comics with a long run on Green Lantern, including creating Kyle Rayner. And he also worked at CrossGen Comics, and we're going to get into all of that stuff in a, a great bit of detail, so stick around. I'm here with comic book writer Ron Mars. How are you doing this evening? I am well, Josh. How are you? I'm very good. I'm, I'm happy that we've... I've, I've talked about talking to you in a longer form for a while, so I'm excited to finally uh, get to the meat of things. <laughs> so you're saying expectations weigh heavily? Uh, for me, anyway. I, don't, I, don't, yeah. I, can't, I can't speak for anyone else. Um, Listen, you're candid. I know it. So hopefully you'll slip up and talk a bunch of shit about someone. You know, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've only had a couple of drinks, so it's totally that's totally yeah. good. Now, uh, you are, and and I don't, don't take this the wrong way, but you're you're a bit of a veteran in the comic book writing field. You've stuck around uh, for a long time, and uh, yeah, I'd say you've got a you've got a generation or so on a lot of the folks who are still writing comics, and that's actually. Uh, it's a testament, actually, because it's it's not an easy industry to stick around in for a long time. Um, but so let's go back a little bit. And, and what was uh, what's your origin story? When did you, I don't think I know like when or how you broke in. I sort of have an idea about when your first comics were, but you know, what was your first work? And when did you? How did you? You know, sort of start writing comics. The uh, the first thing I did was a Silver Surfer annual in 1990. I think number three, maybe uh, maybe number three. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was at the behest of Jim Starlin, who was a buddy, um, a guy I knew and, you know, hung out with and played racquetball with, and we just got to be friendly. And Jim is the one who said, hey, do you, you know, do you want to try your hand at this? And he showed me the ropes, uh, co-wrote a few jobs with me, uh, which I believe actually came out. The stuff that I co-wrote with Jim actually came out after the annual, um, so the actual first stuff that I wrote came out later in the year, but I think the annual was the first thing. Um, and, uh, I, I've been working ever since. So that's uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, my quote unquote origin story is like the last thing anybody ever wants to hear when they ask about, well, how, you know, how do you break into the industry? And, you know, my story as well, my Jim Stalin's my pal, uh, you know that's not a, you know that's not a clear path for most people. Uh, you know, although I did have one guy say, "How do I get to be friends with Jim Starlin?" <laughs> well, what were you? Uh, I mean, what were you planning on doing? Were you hanging out? How old were you? Um, early twenties. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I guess, twenty three, twenty twenty four, maybe. I think when my first gig came out. Um, so I was I was uh, working as a journalist. I was a sports writer first and then a uh, entertainment and entertainment writer movie reviewer uh, at a daily newspaper in upstate new york uh so that i mean my background was always writing uh but i hadn't 
taking the plunge to write comics until I actually sat down to write my first script, which was, you know, the first thing I ever had published. Um, Were you a so fiction it, you know, writer? In some ways, it's, you know, it's like, the, you know, you hear about people who work for years and do small press and claw their way up the ladder. And I, you know, I got my first gig was from Marvel and it was printed. <laughs> That there was a there was a period when that happened, uh, you know, more frequently. I mean, your your story is not all that different from, say, Danny O'Neill's story or something like that, really. Yeah, I mean, it was it, certainly it was a different time in comics, and as you know, as as I started to pick up more work, it was very much you know the boom years suddenly you know descended upon comics and the the speculation craze and all of the crazy sales that went with it, so that. At a certain point, um, not too long after I broke in, I mean, they were looking to they were looking to print any damn thing they could. They just wanted to fill the pages between the ads because they could, you know, they could put out, you know, Night Thrasher and have it sell 150,000 or 200,000 copies. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure I've just insulted somebody. Night Thrasher is their their favorite character ever. It's, it's everything um, you can't avoid. It. But. You know, at a certain point in the 90s, anything would sell in the multiple hundreds of, multiple hundreds of thousands. Um, you know, the, the bottom dropped out of that, you know, fairly soon. But for a while, it was just uh, print as much stuff as we possibly can. Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to be kind of in the midst of that, that craze when I was just breaking in. Well, you were you were a comic book reader. I mean, you knew this stuff. I've 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 read enough. Yeah, of I, you know, I was a, you know, I was a reader. I was a fan of of certain books, and you know, my love of comics really got rekindled um, when I was like just out of high school and and in college in the uh, in the mid eighties, uh, sort of that prime period when Watchmen and Dark Knight came out and. Uh, independent books like Nexus and American Flag were really kind of uh, a heavy part of the industry. It wasn't just uh, Marvel and DC stuff. Um, and of course, you know, the Marvel and DC stuff was stuff that I really gravitated to, like uh, Wolfen and Perez Titans, uh, Simons and Thor, Miller Daredevil. So when I picked up comics again, uh, it was, you know, to me, probably the most fertile period in the medium history yeah now uh and just as sort of the the i want to say that the sort of industry everything started to go downhill you you were fairly well ensconced over you know doing green lantern during what was sort of a rough time so that actually worked out pretty well i guess yeah i, I went from i went from uh marvel to dc uh dc uh lured me over uh i guess you know i had fans at dc that were reading my surfer stuff and I, I ended up over at DC, uh, got the offer to do Green Lantern and, you know, DC was kind of my home for the latter half of the nineties on, uh, most of it on an, ex on an exclusive contract. So that was very much my, you know, my, my home base. It's actually, it's really, I mean, I was going to say it must've been, it's cause you break in rate right as sort of everything is taking off and you would think that in the, the contraction of everything, but I, I guess you'd found a, a good place. And, uh, that was actually where I first came across your work, uh, was, was reading Green Lantern and you got to basically create a, a new Green Lantern, someone who's, who's stuck around to this time. So what was the story behind, I guess saying, you know, 
did you come in and you want to do a new Green Lantern, or or did they say you know we, we want a new take on this, or you know where did how did that work? No, they don't let you know scurrilous freelancers make those kind of decisions. Certainly, um, I, I actually um, I, I tend to remember the story really well because it just it's uh, it sticks out in my mind because it was an unusual uh, circumstance. I had been in the Marvel offices all day um, having a meeting with uh, the Thor editor and trying to figure out where we were going to go for um, the second year or my second year on Thor, which eventually uh, ended up never happening uh, because they couldn't decide what they wanted. Uh, I couldn't get the artist I wanted. It just kind of fell apart. Um, but I had been in, uh, I had been in, uh, New York all day, came home and in the evening, I mean, uh, you know, in the, in the evening hours, got a call from DC and, um, you know, the, the offer on the table was, what do you think about taking over Green Lantern? And it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, Denny O'Neill, Archie Goodwin, Mike Carlin, uh, Kevin Dooley, Eddie Gravanza. I'm not sure if uh, Paul Levitz was in the room too, but it was, you know, I was on a conference call with like the guys who ran the joint basically. Um, and, you know, initially my reaction was, wow, that, that sounds cool. I've always, you know, I've always kind of, I've liked that costume and the, it's a, it's a, it's a character that I didn't read heavily as a kid, but uh, you know, I just like the, the lines of the costume, the concept of the character and all that. Um, and then the other shoe dropped. Well, you know, your job is going to be to take Hal out of the book and come up with a new Green Lantern. <laughs> um, so I kind of went like, "Oh shit, this is this is a little bit more complex than I had thought." Um, so uh, I actually, you know, the, the next day they sent me their their very brief outline of what they wanted Emerald Twilight to be, and I hemmed and hawed for. I think a week or two over whether I wanted to do this or not. Uh, cause I knew it was going to be, uh, you know, it was going to create some controversy. Uh, so the, you know, on the one hand, you've got controversy. On the other hand, you've got a chance to, uh, garner some attention, create something new and different. Um, and I ultimately decided to, you know, to jump in with both feet. And from that point, it was uh, pedal to the metal because the book had had started in one direction. The Jerry Jones scripts were were actually in and done and had been partially drawn when DC decided they didn't want to pursue that direction and wanted a a new Green Lantern. Uh, so we were we were late as soon as I took the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up having to write my first three issues all at the same time. Uh, generally out of order so that I could get three different artists working at the same time. Uh, and, you know, the cool part about it was that DC gave me uh, their, um, you know, their cliff notes for what they wanted those first three issues to be. But after that, they were very much, you know, here, go create a new Green Lantern. And we're very hands off in who that Green Lantern was going to be and what he was going to be like. And, you know, we got to make up everything, you know, the background, the costume, the name, uh, was very much left in the creative team's hands. I'm sure if we had had veered too far, uh, too far afield, they would have reeled us back in. But I, you know, this was, 
I guess, 94, 95. Uh, and I think, you know, in the ensuing 15 years, the industry has changed enough that I, I don't think a creative team would be given anywhere near that kind of freedom mm-hmm. to um, just go in and, and, you know, kind of make up something. It, you know, when you're dealing with uh, characters of that level, concepts of that level, you're just not... Uh, you're not left on your own anymore. You're you're very much uh, kind of given uh, editorial mandates. And I'm not saying one is better than the other or one's a good way to approach it and one's not. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the things involved with your run, I guess, was at the beginning of uh... – of of Kyle's uh, tenure, uh, his girlfriend was was killed, and and that became the name of a whole thing, the women in refrigerators thing. And I and I I've never heard you sort of, I guess, respond to like, what did you think when that happened? I, I know that I know that you're generally conscientious about things, so it's it's not as if uh, you know I you're an evil person, but I'm curious what your reaction was to that is sort of being the you know the flag you know, at for... the time it, at the time it wasn't as i recall that big a deal i mean nobody mm-hmm. lost their minds over it um and you have to remember that this is for the most part pre you know pre internet in terms of comics having a real strong presence mm-hmm. um i mean i certainly didn't go to message boards or any of that stuff right. uh chat rooms or any anything it's just you know it was kind of the the early days so you were, to a certain extent, um, uh, shielded from that because you, you know, it wasn't that immediate reaction that you get from the the internet fan base now. Um, you know, as I recall, people were shocked mm-hmm. and surprised, which was what we wanted. I mean, so that's certainly what I wanted. Um, it, you know, I wanted people to go, "Oh shit, we didn't see that coming." Uh, you know, because if you know, I wanted it to be. Uh, obviously, it's partly uh, inspired by, you know, that sort of Spider-Man archetype that, you know, you do have a great sense of responsibility that comes with this great power that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kyle was certainly uh, cut from the same cloth of that everyman archetype hero. And so in in getting into the book, I felt like, you know, if you, if somebody handed you a Green Lantern ring, this is like winning the lottery. This is the best thing that could ever happen to you. Where's the downside? Where you know, where's the uh, you know, where's the uh, the part that balances winning the lottery? Um, so to me, the obvious choice was, well, you know, he needs to lose someone close to him. Someone else has to pay the price for him having this this magic ring, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the character of uh, Alex, uh, who you know was introduced actually in the first panel that that Kyle ever appeared in, uh, or the first the first scene, um, we knew from right from the start that she was going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's we, we knew that uh, she was going to be the uh, the significant other for him that was going to end up paying the price. Uh, so. Part of it was that we wanted to make sure that she was fully fleshed out as a character and that the readers actually responded to her uh, rather than having her be a cardboard cutout so that when she did get killed, that it was a, uh, you know, it it came as a shock to the audience. You know, we wanted the audience to fall in love with her so that when something really awful happened, 
it was it was disturbing, and it was you know it, everybody felt bad about it. Uh, so I guess in that sense it worked. But you know, obviously I've been tagged with that. Uh, you know, oh that guy hates women, and you know he's he's a uh, misogynist, and you know I think I've been called a misogynist by more people that can't actually spell misogynist than than I can actually name. It's a, it's a difficult word to be fair. Uh, true, true. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it, it's funny that was, even though we got, um, you know, the reaction was, was, uh, obviously much less than it would be today. Sure. Um, we did get, we did get reaction certainly and people were upset over it. And it was, that was kind of my first glimpse into, a mindset that I didn't really understand before uh, on the part of readers that, you know, they equate what happens in the story with what the author is saying. Um, you know, so that if, if something bad happened to a, a character or something evil happened in the story that I was somehow bad or evil. Um, and, you know, I, I honestly, that was kind of a revelation to me because I thought, you know, well, a writer makes up stuff. That's what a writer does. I mean, I, you know, I've used the example before. I, you know, I, just because Thomas Harris writes about Hannibal Lecter, Thomas Harris is not an advocate for cannibalism. You know, he's just making up a bad guy. So when a bad guy in my story uh, kills a woman and stuffs her body in a refrigerator, uh, I'm not saying that's a good thing to do. I'm not an advocate for that. I'm saying it's a horrible thing to do, and you should be upset and angry over it. Um, and I think somehow that that message gets a little um, gets a little lost in the translation sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely definitely the case. Um, you... So ultimately, you know, it it is what it is. That's gonna you know that's gonna be on on my obituary someday, <laughs> uh, far far in the future. Uh, so, you know, it, it is what it is. We, we set out to do something that people would remember. And I, you know, uh, I guess we succeeded. You know, it's a, it's a sword that cuts both ways. Yeah, certainly. Um, although I, I can say that um, the way that scene was originally written uh, and drawn, the refrigerator door was open in the scene so that you see her body stuffed in the refrigerator upside down. Uh, when they submitted the book to the comics code, which was still in, in place at that point, uh, the comics code lost their minds over it and made us redraw that panel so that the door was halfway closed or two thirds of the way closed, really. So that you could just see like her head and a foot and stuff. And because the commerce code censored that scene, I think most people came away from it thinking that her body had been cut up into pieces and stuffed in the refrigerator, mm-hmm. um, which was never the intent. But, you know, so the irony is that the, you know, the censors who lost their minds over the whole thing uh, actually ended up presenting a much more horrific scene in people's minds than we had ever intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somewhere I've still got the page where, you know, the, the door is fully open. Um, uh, and and the other the other aspect of it that I haven't I've mentioned a few times is you know before you started recording we were, we were talking about Stephen King, and honestly the the bit with Alex in the refrigerator was inspired by a scene in Firestarter, 
uh, by Stephen King when uh, the the little girl in Firestarter, whose name I can't remember, but she was played by Drew Barrymore, when the government comes to take her away, they end up killing her mother and stuffing her body in the washing machine, I believe. God, so that always stuck out in my mind, and that's kind of where the refrigerator came from. So you're saying that Stephen King hates women? Yes, I that's think pretty, he's a misogynist. That's pretty, so that's pretty much that. it. Um, yeah, yeah. Now at the same time, I'm I'm just curious because this has been a running gag for with with, with me and my friends for a long time. Are you aware of the Heat people, and were you ever oh, yeah. scared of your scared for your life? Um, no, because <laughs> I I figured I could outrun them if it really became necessary. I could out, I could outrun all three dozen of them. I remember that that horribly ugly website and very serious nature. I mean, I know that this was it was a little. At least nascent internet or pre-internet, but I mean, how? Because a writer today wouldn't be shielded at all from the stuff that's going on. But but back then, like like, were you, were you aware about anything other than outside of like what letters came into the letters column? Well, yeah, we would get uh, we would get letters. They would get letters at the DC offices, and um, you know, so every month or two, they would bundle up all the letters and send them up to me in an envelope. Yeah, and some of them were crazy. Some of them were just completely nuts, and a couple of them as I recall, were actually turned over to the police department because they were death threats. They were, you know, you, sh- you should die for what you did to Hal Jordan. Um, and just because, um, I, I don't think anybody really took them seriously, mm-hmm. but yeah, I guess in those cases, the you know, standard operating procedure is uh, if you get a threatening letter, you turn it over to the cops just so they have it on file. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was, you know, yeah, it was, it was generally. I I think people, people who are upset enough that are moved to write, uh, you know, just kind of spew out onto the page. Some of them, some of it was crazy. Some of it wasn't. Some of it was, you know, uh, we we got some issues cut up into little pieces, sent back in envelopes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was it was a little weird. You know, I I, I always knew that the you know that like Legion of Superheroes fans were the hardcore fan base of all hardcore fan bases but i discovered that the the green lantern fan base was you know running a close second at the very least yeah i mean um, the, the, it can't have ever gotten any worse than that i guess you got your sort of trial by fire through there and well, it, everything you know, after just, that it's gravy it was just a little weird because you you know you you write this stuff and you send it out into the world and then and people go kind of nuts and then you, you you're left thinking well Dude, it's just a comic book. If you don't like it, don't read it. I mean, that's that's how I look at it. But I guess not everybody approaches it that way. So when when Heat came together, and it you know I think at its height it had you know I don't know like four or five dozen members or something like that. Uh, you know, initially they you know they sent in their demands to DC, and their demands were that I be fired from my job. And that the editor be fired from his job, and I just thought, man, what? How did we get to this point where, like, these dudes feel like I shouldn't be able to feed my family because they didn't like a story I wrote? Uh, I don't know. It was, it, like you said, it, you know, it was a bit of an education. Uh, although, you know, a year or two later, I had a, uh, I had a. Uh, meeting with with one of the guys who was I guess instrumental in in Heat. Uh, <laughs> I was at a, a convention in uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, 
somebody pointed out to me, hey, that you know that guy over there, uh, he's you know he's one of the Heat guys, man. He hates your guts. Uh, you know, as I'm sitting at the table signing autographs and stuff. So I know this will come as a shock, but he was you know sort of a pudgy middle-aged fellow with glasses. Uh, and uh, so I thought, well, this should be interesting. I wonder if he's going to you know actually have the you know, have the courage to come up to me and say something or, and, and he did. And he was actually, you know, a pretty nice guy. And, uh, you know, he gave me my heat, my, my very own laminated heat membership card, uh, with a, you know, with an Alex Ross painting of Hal on the front and their demands on the back. Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, okay, you know, very nice to meet you. And, uh, sorry you didn't like the story, but I hope you find something else that you can read and enjoy. And, uh, you know, and the guy said, well, I, I, I really didn't like that story, and I'm very upset with you for, for what you did. Um, can you can you please sign my, my books? <laughs> and handed me a stack of Green Lanterns to sign. It's, it's a strange subculture in certain it's, corners. You know, it's, you know, now usually when I tell that story, I, you know, I tell people that I sign, you know, yours truly Rob Liefeld and <laughs> handed him back but I actually didn't I just signed my name and you know again I, in microcosm it's you know here's this guy who was apparently calling me every name in the book and wanting my head on a platter and wanted me fired and who was ultimately when he was face to face with me very pleasant and asked for my autograph so um now now then following uh uh, Green Lantern. Uh, I guess the next sort of major chapter that happened is the is the Cross Gen chapter. And I'm, if if for those of you listening who don't know, uh, Cross Gen was a a basically a startup comic company that had a very radically different approach to uh, how they were going to make comics, and and everybody was put in a compound in Florida. I mean, what was what was that like? I I guess to sort of get the initial offer and 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 just was it. I mean, was it completely out of left field? And I mean, it must be one of the strangest sort of setups that that we've we've ever seen in comics. Uh, oh yeah, it was completely out of left field because I, you know, I had no, you know, I had never thought about moving to Florida. I had never thought about you know leaving, you know, leaving DC. You know, it just it literally came out of left field, and it was because of a guy that I knew had somehow met Mark Alessi uh, and had. Uh, ended up becoming uh, kind of the you know the PR guy uh, at the company, and so from him knowing me, he introduced me to Alessi and got in touch, and they recruited me and brought me down for a visit and the whole thing. And it, you know it was very um, it's very kind of surreal because you don't I mean that stuff never happens in comics, mm -hmm. and I guess it doesn't happen in comics anymore. But uh, it was. Uh, it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting venture. You know, it was exciting for a while. It was disappointing for a while. Um, I'm ultimately glad that I did it because I, I think I gained really invaluable experience in terms of, uh, writing different kinds of books and putting books together, you know, from start to finish, uh, and kind of seeing the inner workings of how, a, how a company, how a publishing company, goes about its business um yeah it was disappointing that the whole thing fell apart because ultimately their their uh their reach exceeded their grasp they couldn't do everything they wanted to do and they just burned through the money mm -hmm. and there was a lot of money uh at an alarming rate um 
you know, I, in some ways, I think it was probably four or five years before its time. Uh, I think if it had come about four or five years later with the uh, intense uh, Hollywood interest in comics by that point, uh, I think it probably would have floated and been successful. Um, was that but, one of the initial sort of uh, parts of, you know, the business plan was that, you know, like these would then be turned into movies and everything, but it was well, just it was, it was, there was a, there was a sense that, uh, you know, going across a number of different media platforms was, was the direction to go. But the way that those deals ended up being set up or not set up, um, you know, unless you wanted to be in partnership with anybody that wanted to make a movie, rather than just taking the option money and, you know, kind of going the standard route, uh, you know, he wanted to be, uh, he wanted to have an equal chance at the big pot at the end of the, you know, the feature film rainbow. Uh, and in a lot of ways, not taking those deals kind of hamstrung us. There were a lot of deals that came along, whether it was film or uh, advertising or just, you know, a lot of different odds and ends that that we we could have and should have taken advantage of uh, that we didn't, you know, might have ended up keeping the doors open longer than it did. Uh, you know, it's we could do a whole show on, you know, all of the stuff that happened there on its own. But, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't regret the experience and I, you know, enjoyed the hell out of everybody that I worked with there. And, um, you know, I'm pretty, still pretty proud of, of all the books that I did while I was there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some are better than others, but, you know, I'm generally was really pleased with the, uh, with the quality of, of what we were able to pull off, uh, without really any sort of editorial structure, uh, the, the teams, the creative teams on the books were responsible for their books. So, you know, when we got an issue of, of, uh, you know, Sojourn complete and ready to go to press, it was me and Greg Land and, uh, Jay Leiston, the anchor and, uh, Cesar Rodriguez, the colorist and the letterer, uh, who was either Dave Lamphere or Troy Petrie. We were in a room proofing the book ourselves. I mean, everything that was in the book was the way we wanted it to be, or it didn't go off to press. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, it was it was great training ground for doing creator-owned material, because that's very much the the way that you approach that is, you know, you handle everything yourself. But this, the setup really was like you'd go in, you know, nine to five, presumably, you're in a, you're in a place with all the other creators. I mean... I don't yeah, see was, that happening. Was, How was it that? Was, it was like having an office job, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and it was always kind of stunning to me that people, uh, both in the industry and out, just found that to be such a crazy idea mm-hmm. that you know we, you know, we moved to uh, Florida from uh, all points and, and literally all points around the globe. I mean, we had people from. Uh, people from the UK and Brazil and Italy. Uh, we had a number of, of uh, international uh, creators too. You know, it it was really no different than going to work for, you know, Disney or Blizzard or anybody like that that has has a studio, has a headquarters, and that's where you go to work. Um, in a lot of ways, it, the concept of it was inspired by. Um, 
what Mark Alessi believed the Marvel bullpen was like. And where, you know, uh, Smile and Stan and Jazzy John and uh, everybody else was hanging out creating comics. I mean, obviously... Had he ever read any books about that era? Because from my understanding... <laughs> well, well, apparently not, you know? Because uh, when we got there, and you know, the, 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 the penny dropped it. Oh, shit, he, he thinks that was real. Wow. Uh, nobody kind of had the heart to tell him initially that, you know what, that, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> oh, man, I got Florence. I, I flew her down. Um, but I do think the fact that... Uh, that generally the creative teams were around each other and could could uh, really collaborate with each, with each other made for stronger books. Oh, um, you know, I don't think anybody ever. The one thing coming out of it, you know, it wasn't that they did bad books. I mean, people talk about a lot of different eras in comics and like, well, the books weren't good. But I, I don't feel like that was ever the problem. I don't think many of them caught on. But it was really interesting. Like, you, there were good people there, and not necessarily superstars, but you know. Well, I, think, the craft. I, you know, I honestly think we had a a better collection of art talent in mm-hmm. one spot than has ever been assembled in one spot in the history of comics. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was that was pretty awesome. I mean, to be able to come into your come into the the studio in the morning, and you know, there's Brandon Peterson, uh, Butch Geist, Steve Epting, Mike Perkins, uh, Jim Chung, Paul Pelletier. Uh, on and on and on, uh, you know. Obviously, forgetting guys, but um, I mean, it was there were guys there with serious chops, and they just made each other better because nobody wanted to hang up the shitty page of the day mm-hmm. um, outside their, you know, outside their area, outside their their uh, uh, cubicle area, because the studio, the, the biggest part of the studio, was a large open floor that had, you know, divider walls where, you know, where everybody had workstations. And um, I think I think a lot of the artists came in and, and just got better by being in the environment because everybody pushed each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how long were you down there? And I guess it, at what point did it did the sort of the writing sort of start to appear on the wall that that it wasn't going to hang together? Um, we were down there a total of five years, but I think I was wow. only at the company like three and a half years. Or, or two, you know, I think three and a half, because we were we were down there for uh, a good six or eight months before the first issues ever came out, um, and uh, it, you know it was it was a really interesting time because virtually everybody was from somewhere else, uh, everybody uh, that came in creatively was from somewhere else, and there were growing pains, and there were people who weren't quite up to. Uh, up to working in the environment, there were management issues where we really had to kind of educate management to the point where, like, you know, I mean, literally there were some days when uh, there would be somebody standing at the front door of the clipboard, and if you weren't in the door by 9 o'clock, you would get a talking to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I finally had to go into uh, the boss's office and say, Look, it doesn't matter if people are here at nine o'clock or nine o two or ten thirty or noon. You've hired people that want to do this. This is what we want to do. People are going to get their jobs done. You don't have to be hanging over them. And that was a completely foreign concept to you know this guy who would come from a technology background. Um, it, it was a revelation to him that people would do their work, 
even if you weren't like looking over their shoulders. It seems to it would seem to chafe with the the idea of the sort of comic book freelancer. I mean, for some people, the whole idea of of getting into the industry is like I don't I don't have to get up early in the morning. I don't have to do whatever. I mean, you, but you have to do the work. Sure. Yeah. It was it was um, it was a growing process for everybody involved. And look, the, the first year was not easy because there were a lot of those growing pains, and some people, you know. Some people took to it. Some people didn't. Um, you know, there were certainly uh, there was certainly some grief in the first in the first year as people figured out whether they wanted to be there or not, whether uh, this was going to work or not. Um, but I think, by and large, the books that came out of that period were um, were pretty good. Uh, and for the vast majority of the, of the time that Crushton existed. The books came out on schedule like clockwork, mm-hmm. uh, and, and a large part of that was due to the fact that you know there was a realization that if you're going to do monthly books, you have to slot in fill-in issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not realistic to expect guys to do that level of work and get 12 issues a year out of them. Mm-hmm. Virtually nobody can do it. Um, but there was also uh, you know, a support system when a book got off schedule or needed help. You know, there were other, you know, pencilers, inkers, colorists, whoever might be needed, available to chip in and, and get the damn thing out and, and make sure it made shipping. Um, so, you know, it was great to have that feather in our cap for, I think, three years or so. Uh, and then little by little, it started to unravel. Um, uh, mostly financially, because the the company expanded way too quickly. I think when you know when I initially moved down there, when you know when my wife and I decided, well, look, let's 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 take a flyer on this and and see what happens. You know, it, the worst thing that can happen is that the place folds and we move back home, uh, which eventually is what happened. But uh, we felt like we were young enough, and our son at the time was just going into kindergarten so we felt like we could you know if we were going to move do something like that you know have an adventure for a few years now was the time rather than you know wait till we were older our kids were in school and you know it it makes the decisions that much more complex so uh so we you know we took the plunge and and went for it and you know, I, I think for us, more positives than negatives came out of it. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, from a from a creative standpoint, especially as a, a comic book writer, there must be something extremely valuable about actually spending that much time around the artists. Uh, because you know, for most writers, it's it's largely solitary. You're at home. You, you'll talk on the phone. You'll do some things like that. But when you're really around the sort of pages being crafted, you can really sort of understand what each other are doing. A, a lot more, I think, than, than probably happens today. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, and certainly the, you know, the ability to just walk over to a guy's table and say, hey, what do you want to draw this month? Mm-hmm. Or what do you not want to draw? Or conversely, the ability for the for the artist to come into your office and say, you know, I got a different way that I want to do this page, or what do you, you know, what do you think about this? It, you know, again, it was it was much more collaborative than you could be you know, if you were on opposite ends of the country, it, it was, uh, everybody pulled toward the same goal rather than have it be more of an assembly line process, which is mostly what you get, uh, 
when you're doing, you know, when you're doing monthly books, uh, freelance style, uh, it, it becomes, um, it, it can become, uh, you know, a little faceless, especially if, uh, if the editor is not one who wants the creative team to to have a whole lot to do with each other, and, and there are editors like that who you know kind of want want walls between everybody so they can control the process a bit more. Uh, you know, it, you know, I, I I went down there with some of the people who were there were already my friends. I made a lot more friends down there that are still my friends, um, I, and I wouldn't trade that for for any part of it. I, you know. The, the people that that we became close to down there and and are still close to now is you know to me that's that's invaluable yeah it sounds uh and again like there's nothing like that in comics that i mean it's it's almost like this long sort of comic convention i mean if you think about it, people in comics get to see their friends when they go to shows and they happen to be at those other shows or you know friends co-workers collaborators whatever and uh, i feel like that's where you know that's how the industry get gets by. That's how people get to know each other. Now, now we have Twitter, but yeah, still, this was, well, yeah, uh, this was yeah, this was like this was that aspect every day. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, there were certain days that, without the drinking. Well, I didn't say that. Oh. <laughs> we actually, we actually, there was booze in the place all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a refrigerator stocked with beer. Uh, you know, at at company expense, and when you wanted to have a beer, you wanted to have one. <laughs> It was very, you know, it, it was a very, uh, you know, like on the one end, they wanted you, initially they wanted you in the door at, uh, you know, nine, nine o'clock, not nine oh one, And then, you know, at the other end of the day, if you, you know, if you wanted to go crack a beer at five o'clock while you were finishing your page, nobody cared. Uh, so it was... It, you know, it was, there was, a, you know, we had a cafe, you know, we had a lunchroom in the in the place that had a foosball table and you know there was there was literally a you know electric cabinet and um you know in it was in some ways it was this sort of button down uh publishing place and in other ways it was you know it had aspects of a frat house so uh I guess when that when that all wrapped up and and you moved along uh, was it did it feel like it was a different uh, industry than, than sort of it had been when you went in? Because that was the time of uh, sort of a lot of change. It's a different industry now than it was then. But uh, sort of when you came back in, um, what was the challenge for you? Where, you know, did you have to sort of start over? Um, you know, not start over because I had, I had actually done, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit of freelance work here and there. <clears throat> Even while I was at Crush and I, you know, you would go and sort of get papal dispensation if you wanted to uh, work on something else outside the company, uh, even though we were on exclusive contracts and, and we were on, we were on salary. I mean, that was, that was really the allure of the place for a lot of people, I think. And, and for a lot of people that had families or, sure. you know, had, or were just starting families. Um, you know, when you're a freelancer, look, if I, you know, if I slip on the ice tomorrow morning and crack my head open and can't work for a month, we don't get paid, you know, my family doesn't get paid for a month. That's just the way it works. There's no paycheck coming until you finish your work. Um, that is the downside of living the freelance life. And yes, I, you know, I get up when I want and I, you know, wear sweatpants and a sweatshirt when I walk down the stairs to my office and, you know, all of those benefits are great. But, uh, you know, when the, 
the other reality is, you know, you got to do the work and you got to keep finding the work uh, in order to get paid. Uh, and if, you know, if the mailman happens to lose your check, oh, well, you know, half the time you don't, you know, you don't realize it for a week. And you go, oh, wait a minute, I was owed money and it's not, it hasn't shown up. You know, there are aspects of living the freelance lifestyle that are just a huge pain in the ass. Um, so the allure of, of, of CrossGen was, you know, every two weeks, uh, you know, our our paychecks were deposited into, into our account directly. And, man, it was a beautiful thing. You, you got two weeks of vacation. You got to have sick days. Um, you know, you, you got to enjoy the benefits that the rest of the world uh, actually takes for granted in their jobs. And you got to make comic books. And we got to make comic books, you know, and, and ultimately, look, there, there are days when you don't want to make comic books. It's just, you know, it, it becomes a grind like any other. But uh, it was, you know, it was, as envisioned, it was not, it was not bad. I mean, there were certain people that, that just never, uh, never took to uh, the way the place ran or, you know, look, Mark Wade will tell you horror stories about what it was like there. Um, but yet, you know, and, and, and look, Mark sort of, he, he definitely, you know, banged his head into more than a few walls at CrossGen. Um, but Mark being a single guy has different parameters of what are, what's important to him than, say, I did with, you know, a wife and a young family or a lot of the other guys that had families. Um, you know, it was a good fit for some people and it was not such a great fit for others. Uh, you know, it's the unfortunate part of the, the failure of it, I think, is that nobody will ever do that again. Yeah. Nobody will ever try to um, run a studio and treat the employees, treat the creators like employees ever again, because it's an expensive way to do it. And the place ultimately failed. Um, but, I, you know, I'll tell you, I, I enjoyed the hell out of having, uh, you know, knowing that if I got a script done this week or if there were, you know, myriad distractions and I didn't get a script done this week, uh, my paycheck was going to be the same either way. Mm -hmm. um, now, ultimately, you had to, you know, you had to get the work done. And if that meant coming in on a Saturday or working from home or working in the evenings, you know, that went along with it. And, and you know, really, it should. It's, you know, you've you got to get your work done. But it was nice knowing that that uh, you sort of had that security of a regular paycheck and and benefits and all that all the stuff that that like I said that you know the rest of the working world kind of takes for granted and and freelancers uh, miss greatly when it's not there. Now, uh, I guess I guess moving forward into the the, the next epoch would be uh, I was I was doing I was doing a little research because I'm responsible and and I it hit me that, you, that you've been on Witchblade for for seventy issues, which is which is a heck of a lot of time. Uh, I mean, is that is that as longer longer than than uh, any of the other projects you've done? No, I think I actually did um, seventy five issues of Green Lantern. Oh, well, what uh, are you doing getting off now? <laughs> It was the brass ring was so close. Um, you, you know, Witchblade was actually one of the things that uh, that ultimately came out of walking away from CrossGen. Um, and when I did, when I when I left CrossGen, um, uh, 
uh, it was in part spurred by the um, the, the chief financial officer w- was and still is a a really good friend of mine. And um, the day that he quit uh, was uh, was obviously a fairly watershed day in the history of the company. It, things were starting to look shaky. Uh, and the money wasn't uh, the money wasn't uh, coming in as fast as it was going out anymore. Mm-hmm. Was there a time uh, though when it was it was profitable? Yeah, yeah. I, our uh, crossing the burn rate of money was uh, always always exceeded the the money coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know, look, we by the time at its height, CrossGen had more than 100 employees. Wow. Which is pretty stunning, and had people on staff that were uh, supposed to start the, uh, start our own toy division, mm-hmm. and people who were on staff to do, uh, you know, movie interfacing. I mean, we had way more people than we needed, and we were publishing way more books than we should have. Uh, and and try as we might, try as the as the creative staff might, you know, to convince the, you know, the boss that, look, if, if you're making X amount of money on four books, you don't make X, you don't make two X on eight books. That's not how the math works. You know, eventually you're going to get to the point where you start to cannibalize your own audience and the sales start to slide. And, um, you know, he was, you know, in his mind, it was, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. You know, I want to, you know, get to 5% and get in the front of the catalog and, you know, do all this, you know, he, he wanted to ultimately compete with Marvel and DC. Um, and I remember that the first time he said that was at a, uh, at, at a wizard convention in Chicago at, on a panel where Alessi, you know, kind of pounded his fist on the table and said, you know, within a few years, we're going to be, you know, knocking Marvel and DC off, off their pedestal. And those of us who were at the company that were in the room, you know, looked around and went, what the fuck is he talking about? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, to a person, everybody there felt like, okay, maybe in 10 years, this place could grow to be number three. But uh, as far as we were concerned, you know, the the idea was to be a boutique publisher and, you know, offer counter-programming to what Marvel and DC were doing. You know, we didn't do superheroes. We were going to do other things. So this, uh, you know, this sudden urge to compete with the companies that have been, you know, in control of the of the business for 40 years came out of left field and left all of us going like, what what is he thinking? Um, and that's when the company really started to ramp up and, uh, you know, bring in more creators, publish more books, spend more money. Uh, you know, it, eventually it just got to the point where uh, it was unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So the CFO left. CFO left. Yeah, you're, I'm I'm tangenting. It's okay. Uh, the CFO the CFO left and uh, called me from his car. He you know he got to the point where he you know there was a line he wouldn't cross, and he said nope, I quit. He called me from his car, and said, I just quit. You need to think about doing something else. Mm-hmm. And. You know, it, the place the place hung on for probably another year, eight months, nine months, something like that. Um, but at that point, I knew that you know, if he had walked away, that that was the end. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, my 
exit strategy, I guess, uh, was, you know, in the back of my head at that point. So I started to make some phone calls. Uh, uh, actually, even before I made phone calls, uh, I got a call from Dark Horse that evening that had heard, you know, one of my buddies out there had heard that uh, that the CFO had quit that day because word travels quickly in, in the world of comics. Um, and said, hey, do you, do you need a gig? What do you want to do? So that's why I ended up doing Star Wars. And then not long after that, uh, Jim McLaughlin called me uh, from Top Cow and said, hey, what do you want to do? And so I did, uh, you know, some odds and ends, some darkness issues and things like that. And uh, and then Jim called me and offered me uh, Witchblade. Uh, or actually, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, Magdalena. And he said, yeah, that's great. Why don't you do Witchblade instead? Um, so, uh, you know, I basically you've, you've done, uh, let's see, 70 issues, like almost half of, of, of what there is of Witchblade. And, you know, it, it's fair to say that, that there are some, there's some loaded ideas about what Witchblade is and, uh, what it represents in comics and, and sort of, you know, as part of the medium, what did, what did you think of it when you started and what was your goal, uh, sort of with the book? Well, I, you know, I honestly hadn't read it, mm-hmm. like, ever. I mean, I hadn't, I mean, I, I had seen issues. I knew the basic concept, but I had never actually sat down and read a run of issues when Jim had offered me the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> I actually remember, you know, I was, we have we have horses. We had them in Florida, too. We have them up here in New York now. Um, I assume you had to ride them north. That's correct. Yeah, I actually told Mike Cotton from Wizard that we we had ridden them north, and he believed me for a couple of years. I think. <laughs> um, I, I was I, when Jim called. I was actually standing out in our uh, out in our horse pasture shoveling horse shit. Um, so uh, he called and offered me the book, and I said, well, "Why don't you send me some so I can at least see what I'm getting into, and then we'll then we'll sort it out." And you know. The, you know, in a day or two, a huge box of Witchblade comics showed up, and you know, and I went through them, and and what I eventually said to Jim was, look, you know, a lot of this, a lot of these issues, not all of them by any means, but you know, there are a number of them where these stories are more or less excuses for her clothes to fall off. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what I'm interested in writing. If if that's what you guys want, look, that certainly fills a niche in the market and I have no problem with that but I'm not the guy to do it uh, I just don't have the interest in writing that stuff uh, if you guys are cool with me writing stories that are about her as a cop and her with this supernatural uh, with this supernatural gauntlet and you know and the main reason that people come to the book is because they want to find out what happens to her every month then then I'm in and uh, for you know, for me, to you know, to Top Cow's everlasting credit, they said, "Yeah, do what you want." Mm-hmm. And there's <clears throat> there's never been any any pushback about uh, you know, well, it's not sexy enough, or or you know, we need stories to we need stories to go in a certain direction. They've very much let me kind of set the course uh, since you know since I took over the book uh, seventy issues ago. <laughs> and um and I've enjoyed the hell out of it. It's it's really been uh it's really been a very comfortable fit for me and I would never have guessed that 
uh, at the outset. When did you get an idea that you were going to sort of be be doing it for a long time, and 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 did you start to sort of come up with longer term plans uh, for the book, and and sort of what eventually became? I mean, it was it's a, it's a big story, and it sort of went into what is now artifacts, which you're going to keep doing. But you know, like how long is the sort of thing that's going on been in the works? Um. For the most part, you know, and what I've said previously is true. You know, all of this stuff has kind of grown organically. There hasn't been a an overriding, you know, seventy issue plan in place that you know here's where we're going to end up. Um, you know, one one storyline has kind of led to another, and and to me, that's that's how this stuff usually works out best is when you you let the story and the characters kind of dictate to you where they want to go. Um, it's, you know, once we started to expand a little bit beyond, um, you know, kind of what we always end up calling monster of the week stories, uh, where it's, you know, Sarah and the Witchblade, and there's some supernatural craziness going on. And, you know, it's kind of a one and done story, even if it's over two or three issues. Um, I, I think the first time I really started to dig into it was when I said, look, we, you know, we had the, I think, 10th anniversary issue coming up, uh, which was issue 92. And, and I said, look, we, we need to figure out what the hell the Witchblade is. I mean, where did it come from? What is it? Why did, you know, how does it work? Let's answer those questions because after 10 years, the, you know, the readers deserve that. Mm-hmm. And, they were cool with it, and I just kind of made up the, uh, you know, made up the the framework of of what is now kind of the you know the Top Cow universe and the artifacts and all that kind of stuff. That sort of that sort of started to come into play uh, at about that point, um, and I tried to tie together some of the hints and uh, plot threads from previous stories. Uh, but not in a way that, that wallowed in the previous continuity because, you know, that's one of the things I can't stand is when, you know, you have to have a PhD in, in continuity to come in and understand what's going on. Um, I tried to tie the stuff together and not put the lie to anything that had come before, but generally just start to build from where we were so that the audience could follow along or join in at, at any point. And, uh, I guess, you know, as you, you're sort of you're wrapping it up. I think uh, when people listen to this, the, the issue will have come out uh, basically at least the day before. <laughs> Unless they listen to it, uh, you know, before tomorrow morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, so, I mean, how did it feel to, to finish it up and to walk away uh, and, and to be? I mean, you're not fully going away because you're still going to be doing artifacts and things like that. But the, this book's been your home for for quite a while. It's it's a little weird. Yeah. Uh, it's. Um, uh, not entirely, uh, not entirely welcome, and uh, you know, and I, I didn't know that that would be the case at the time. Uh, you know, yes, it, it it's great to uh, move on and and you know take on other challenges, do do other books, uh, but you know, obviously it's fairly fresh. You know, we we sent 150 off to press, you know, just a few weeks ago, so. It's it's not far enough in my rearview mirror yet to really let me have 
any kind of real perspective on it. Uh, but I, I think I'm going to miss uh, miss Sarah's life. And uh, yeah, it feels it feels a little bit like you know like breaking up with a long time girlfriend because mm-hmm. uh, you know she's going to be off seeing somebody else, and you're not going to get to see her that often. Um, and, and I'm curious about one thing, and if if you haven't read the book yet, uh, folks at home, uh, I guess this would be a bit of a spoiler. But <laughs> as you leave her, you're you're basically you basically changed a very uh, big part of her life, and she's she's walking away from the force. She left her badge. And uh, I'm curious, is that, does that come from you or, or did you, you know, sort of talk with Tim Seeley about, or did you say, here you go, this is, <laughs> this is your, she lost your job, here you go, it's your problem now. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to do than an ex-writer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I figure that's a thing that happens a lot. <laughs> and in my last issue, suddenly she's a man. Yeah. Um, you know, that was really, uh, that kind of came about rather organically too, when we figured out that 150 would be the last one for Stapon and I before we moved over to Artifacts. Um, we had, had this uh, internal affairs investigation as a background uh, subplot running through a number of issues. Uh, and then when it became obvious that 150 was going to dovetail with Artifacts 13, which kind of puts a different spin uh, or a different status quo uh, onto Sarah and onto uh, a number of other characters in the Top Gun universe, uh, including Jackie Estacado. Um, and then when they chose Tim as the guy to come in and take over, um, and he had some ideas about, uh, you know, picking up Sarah and moving her to a different place, and everything just kind of gelled in the same direction. So... Um, that it made it made sense for me to for me to end our run on the kind of note that it does, uh, and I think ultimately, even if we ended up, if, even if we hadn't left the book, I think 150 kind of would have ended the same way anyway, mm-hmm. because for a while we had talked about um, removing Sarah from the force and and taking her. Uh, to different locations to tell some different kinds of stories rather than, uh, you know, we, we'd done 70 issues in New York city, uh, give or take. And, you know, the city's very, very familiar to me. And I think it's a great setting. It's, it's really another character in the book, but after that many issues, you do want to do some different things. Uh, and changing the setting is one of the ways that you can set the stage for that. Uh, I guess speaking of different settings, uh, at the same time you've got uh, you're doing artifacts, and and at this point it's it's a very different uh, feel, I guess, from the sort of New York City setting, at least where artifacts is right now. Um, so you've got these same characters, but you have them in a completely different different place. Is that is that a different set of muscles uh, to be working entirely? Um, maybe a little bit, but but mostly, I you know I the way I tend to write stuff comes out of character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the characters ultimately dictate where you go and what you do. And, uh, you know, my mantra is character first. So, you know, if I'm <clears throat> doing a story with, with Sarah in New York city, or I'm, you know, I'm doing a story with Sarah in a, you know, secret scientific base hidden under the, under the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, where, 
uh, you know, madman's trying to bring the universe to an end. I don't approach them that differently because I'm, you know, I'm really funneling what I do through Sarah's character. Um, for artifacts, it's a little bit different because it's it's larger scale and it's got, uh, and, you know, it's got a much bigger cast. But um, my intention with artifacts from the beginning was that the spine of the story was ultimately Jackie and Sarah and their daughter Hope. So. You know, no matter how much crazy stuff went on and, you know, Cyberforce shows up and Hunter Killer shows up and, you know, there's, you know, <clears throat> big cyborg battles and, you know, you know, very much kind of action set pieces. The story itself always comes back to that spine and to, it comes back to that emotional uh, content. And we're, uh, let me see, issue, issue 12, we just sent to press last week. Issue 13, we're sending to press this week, so those will come out right on top of each other. Uh, those issues are very much, uh, very much in keeping with the idea that our story is ultimately about those three characters, and that's what it comes back to. Is it? Is I mean, but besides those, there are there are a, a ton of characters. Uh, is is it challenging to sort of juggle all of those? I mean, there's a, that's a that's a big book. It feels it feels a little, you know. It's almost like an infinity gauntlet of the Top Cow universe, uh, you know, from from where I'm from where I'm looking at. It's a ton of people. They're off in a strange world. Uh, big stakes. I mean, is that? Um, I you know I'll take that as a compliment because I enjoyed the hell out of Infinity Gauntlet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to me, there's there's a certain magic in these big crossover stories if they're done right, and I think a lot they've become so prevalent uh, that I think some of that magic is. It's kind of diminished um, because it, you know, now the event is the the rule rather than the exception. It's not special anymore, really. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, artifacts has some some of that sensibility to it still because we don't normally put all of these characters together. In fact, we've never put all of these to- characters together before. Um, yeah, there's a certain, I guess, there's a certain skill in kind of juggling all the characters and making sure everybody. Everybody gets their moment. Nobody gets lost in the shuffle. Um, my biggest concern with with approaching this kind of story that that had a large scale um, was that you know it becomes it becomes too much about uh, you know the double spread fight scenes and not enough about the characters. That's why you know, like I said, I keep coming back to to Sarah and Jackie because that's that's the emotional core of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's cool when, you know, when all these characters are, you know, beating the hell out of each other and trashing lower Manhattan. But if, if the readers don't care about the characters and there's no real emotional stakes, you know, it ends up being a Michael Bay movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of shit blows up, but you don't really care. Um, to me, if you don't care about the characters, there's no reason to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, I guess now that, that artifacts is, is gone from, it was a 13 issue series originally, uh, you know, sort of a maxi series, you know, can you keep up this sort of, uh, I'm going to say largeness going forward, uh, indefinitely. Is that the plan? I thought you were going to say largesse. Um, (laughs) it's comics. It's comics in 2011. Come on. Um, 
you know, without giving away sort of how issue 13 yeah. ends and how how the status quo is affected, um, issue artifacts will certainly be a a book with a larger scale to it mm-hmm. and with more characters kind of running through it on a on a pretty regular basis. Um, certainly then, you know, like the Darkness or Witchblade monthlies, which are very much uh, solo books with supporting casts. Um, Artifacts will have uh, Tom Judge as its point of view character. Uh, He is the bearer of the rapture and and a character I'd never written before uh, until he shows up in Artifacts number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it turns out that I really like writing him, so he's kind of the the POV character and then some of the other uh characters from artifacts will be uh will be around him and at least for the first year or so it, a lot of it's going to be kind of exploring uh what might be different uh post artifacts 13 and and kind of getting a sense uh, for the characters of this 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 world they find themselves in mm-hmm. uh uh, Jackie and Sarah will both show up in artifacts on a, you know, fairly regular basis when we can dovetail it with their, uh, you know, with their appearances in their own books. Um, you know, I'm, I'm never one to have to be overly concerned about. Well, you know, on on Tuesday, Spider-Man, you know, was in Lower Manhattan, but on Wednesday he was, you know, he was in Central Park. You know that that stuff's immaterial to me. Um, we just want to make sure that you know if Sarah's a you know has been turned into a three-headed demon in Witchblade, that she's not going to show up in Artifacts for a while because she's dealing with her own thing. Um, but you know, one of the nice things about the Top of the Universe is that it's it's still small enough and contained enough that it's easy to keep all that stuff straight. Um, in a lot of ways, we we kind of compare it to the the Marvel universe of the '60s, where you know things were were fairly contained, and um, you could do you know you could do some stuff like have you know have Daredevil uh, swing past Spider-Man in a background, and you know you kind of got a sense that these characters were in the same place at the same time, and their stories would once in a while cross. But you didn't have to read every book in the line to understand what was going on. So, um, and and I don't, I don't want to give uh, entirely short shrift to to the you, you'll be writing. So, just going forward, you'll be you'll be writing uh, artifacts, and 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 Magdalene is still an ongoing concern. If I'm not still an ongoing concern, we we would love to sell more copies of Magdalena, but you know, but for now, we're still cranking them out. Um, and then and then at the same time, uh, you're doing. <laughs> doing it a little backwards. Uh, you have creator-owned uh, properties coming out at the same time uh, with Shinku uh, from Image. <laughs> Does it occur to you that that I'm, I'm most, a lot of people now start doing that and then then go on to doing other work for higher stuff? So what's that like having sort of come up through the the most mainstream of stuff to the point where you were you had an office job doing comics uh, and now and now you're you're sort of doing. Uh, you know, see to your pants. Uh, uh, creator on comics. Well, it's um, it's actually very natural to me because when I came up, you know, when I broke into comics, you 
you worked at the big two to make your bones and establish your name. And then you went off to do your creator own stuff. I mean, that's kind of the, the model that I'm used to. That's, that's the model that makes sense to me. Um, and you see that with guys like, uh, you know, Frank Miller, uh, doing, uh, everything that he did for Marvel and DC and then going off to do, uh, to do Sin City and to do Martha Washington. Um, that was kind of the accepted notion that, or the accepted path that, that creators took is, you know, you, you build up your, your name and your following, uh, working on company owned characters. And then you went off and, and did your own thing. You know, that's the Chaykin doing American flag and Starlin doing Dreadstar. you know, all of those books kind of follow that, follow that path. Um, so to me, you know, to me, what the, what's going on now is backwards. Um, to me, the end goal, the, you know, the, the reward at the end of this is to do your own book and to own your own characters. Uh, but the way, you know, the way the industry works now, you kind of have to do your creator own stuff to gain entrance into Marvel and DC and then spend your time working on characters that are 40 or 50 or 60 years old uh, and, and, you know, propping up uh, corporate trademarks. Uh, and not that there's anything wrong with that. That's certainly a viable, uh, you know, a viable course. And look, I, you know, I don't begrudge anybody getting a paycheck to write or draw. Uh, it's, uh, you know, man, it's better than having a real job. But, um, you know, it's, it's the way things are done now is a little foreign to me, uh, because, uh, to me, the, the end goal shouldn't be to, you know, to just be the next guy in a, in a line who's, uh, written, you know, written whatever big two superhero you'd, you'd care to name. Um, you know, I think the nice thing for writers is that we can have a balance we can we can do the work for higher stuff that actually pays the bills and have some time to do the creator own stuff as well uh where it becomes kind of uh kind of sticky is is finding artists to work with because artists generally with the exception of a few uh superhuman freaks like you know John Romita Jr or Mark Bagley you know very few guys can handle more than one book a month uh so at the, By and at large, the oh, sorry, say again. At the most. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, by and large, uh, an artist has to pick one book and stay on it, or you know, to pick one project that they're they're going to be on. Um, which is why, you know, you always see kind of name brand writers working with artists who are very much on the. Uh, you know, on the entry path of their career rather than big established guys. I mean, I think that's one of the kind of uh, genius uh, things that Mark Miller has been able to do, which is to attract uh, really big name mainstream artists to work on his creator own stuff so that you kind of get a a double barrel um, in terms of the creative team. Uh, That's not very usual because, you know, most artists can't, afford to 
give up that that regular steady paycheck of work for hire for the you know you'll get paid on the back end maybe if there's some profit uh of creator owned mm-hmm. um is is <laughs> is it uh is it too soon to ask uh what happened over on voodoo um you can ask all you want but you'd mm-hmm. have to ask somebody other than me right because um, I, I just, I honestly don't know. Um, I know, you know, the the statement I I put out uh, in the fan press is is exactly all I know. Uh, the outgoing editor gave me a call on his second to last day in the office and said, "Hey, uh, I'm leaving, and so are you." Uh, not in so many words, obviously, but. You know, and I, that's that's really ex- except for cleaning up the loose ends on on my last issue. That's all I've heard from anybody up there. Um, I was just told that they wanted to go in a different direction, and I don't know what that direction is. Uh, I don't know why uh, they felt like I could not give them whatever that direction is. But you know, that's that's the way it goes. Um, it's uh, you know, it's disappointing for me. Certainly, uh, we didn't get to finish the story we were we were setting out to tell and I definitely miss working with the art team because I thought uh, they were doing just phenomenal work uh, you know if, uh, if everything shakes out right hopefully I can uh, find something to work on with them later on down the road um, but you know I, I'm honestly still kind of baffled over the whole thing um, you know it's obviously the success of the new 52 and the demands for continued success from the new 52 uh, has added a layer of pressure to um, to DC's decisions and uh, you know not being in those editorial shoes I can't say uh, you know I can't say why it happened and I can't say whether it's right or wrong uh, it's just you know look I've got a hole in my schedule and uh, hopefully I'll find something to fill that and hopefully DC gets the sort of book that they're, that they're happy with out of voodoo. It's, it's, it's too bad. I, I think it was off to a good start. I, and I really like that character. I think uh, when they, when they shut down Wildstorm, there was a, a few characters who uh, there's definitely some who had some, some, uh, some life in them. And uh, it was, it was good to see it going a certain way. Um, well, yeah. it was, you know, it was fun. It was, it was, uh, you know, we started rather late in the process. I think I was probably, if not the last writer hired in, maybe one of the last two or three hired in. And so we were kind of behind the, the eight ball deadline wise from day one. Um, but the flip side of that was that there wasn't anything, uh, there were no real demands in place in terms of what the book was supposed to be, what the character was supposed to be. It was very wide open. And so, uh, I came up with, uh, conceptually a book that was going to be different from a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the, the main superhero titles in 52 in that it was going to be, you know, the kind of, the hero was not really a hero. The villain wasn't really a villain. Everybody was kind of morally ambiguous. And then over the course of the first year of the book, um, Voodoo and the, uh, the the Agent Fallon character would end up growing in different directions. And their um, their 
moral uh, standings would become more apparent as as they grew in those directions. Uh, ultimately, that's not what we were uh, asked to do with the book. So um, we kind of started in one direction and then got pulled off into another. Uh, so uh, I, you know, I'll be interested to see where where the book actually goes, and I hope it you know I hope it gets uh, a chance to you know, a chance to at least finish off its first year and, and attract an audience. Um, like I said, I, we had a lot of fun doing it. And the fact that it, we knew it was going to be a team plus book from the beginning allowed us to kind of push the envelope a little bit more than, than we certainly would have been comfortable doing had it been a, you know, a kind of mainstream DC superhero title. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess before we get going, I I, uh, I haven't asked you any craft questions, and I think that um, bef- before we do, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, you don't script uh, in exactly the same way as you, you don't do like a, a full script right out. Is it is it, you do you, you lay all the pages out ahead of time and then dialogue those? Is that right? Um, yeah, I do all the breakdowns first, mm-hmm. and uh, depending on the deadline demands, if I have time to go in and put in. Uh, you know, actual uh, 90% scripted finished dialogue, I will, uh, under the understanding that that I'm going to generally ignore that dialogue and rewrite it all anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I make sure that I give the artist, you know, absolutely a sense of what's being said, who's saying it, who needs to be standing on which side of the panel so that the dialogue flows in the right, in the right order. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me... The the panel breakdowns and the dialogue are kind of two separate areas of my head. So uh, there there's certainly a lot of crossover between the two, but I like to do them. Uh, I like to do a, a a breakdown take and then a dialogue take. Uh, and you know that's actually what I'm doing tonight is going through and uh, rescripting some some pages in Artifacts 13 so that I'm so that my dialogue is matched to exactly what's on the page, not what I hoped would be on the page six weeks ago when I broke the, when I wrote the breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, uh, I mean, since so much of, of the work that's done now is, isn't actually in that style. Um, do you find that, that, uh, it takes a little bit of breaking in with, with artists who you're or new to working with, or, um, they generally uh, like the approach, I guess. Um, I, you know, every artist is different. Yeah. There's not a, uh, there's not a hard and fast rule for, for anybody really. Yeah. Um, I found that, that most artists like to be, uh, like to be more included in the process, like to be, uh, given, you know, an amount of storytelling responsibility instead of, you know, here's a full script, just draw it on monkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's certainly been been a uh, uh, that style has been I think kind of prevalent the last you know bunch of years where uh, everything was full script and the artists were just kind of uh, the artists weren't really considered in the process. Um, I will very rarely uh, write a script until I know who's drawing it because I want to write a script for that artist, not just for an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be able to to um, pattern what I do 
to make that artist's job easier and get the best finished product out of the artist. Um, so if, you know, I'll look at a guy's stuff and I, you know, if I feel like their storytelling is, is, uh, I think a lot of times guys fall into, um, even or odd storytelling patterns, uh, in terms of the number of panels on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, some guys are more even and work better within a grid. Some guys are, are better for an odd number of panels on a page where they can, uh, move things around and, and have a, uh, you know, have a bit more control over, uh, the flow of the page. I mean, you're going to, the artist has more control over that in, in the situation where you're giving them an odd number of panels on a page. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I want it to be a collaborative, uh, process because if it's just an assembly line, you're not getting the most out of everybody involved. Uh, you know, I would much prefer to, you know, I've said this before, I would much prefer to, work with a really good artist on a lousy character than work with a lousy, lousy artist on a really good character. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, I mean, do you tend to do it fairly loosely? Because, I mean, breakdowns tend to be a, a relatively large part of the of the artist's job. So, you know, how, how often is, is that stuck to? I, I imagine, you know, talking about your prior experiences, you're fairly collaborative. I know, you know, you're, you're talking to the artist, you're going back and forth, you know, you want them. To you know, it, it all depends it. on who the artist is and what they want, what... I mean, some guys want uh, some guys want as much freedom as possible to to figure out the page and and bring that to it. Some guys want you know some guys want to want you to give them everything and they'll follow it. Uh, it's really you know you pattern your your to me the the writer's job is to pattern pattern the script to the guy that you're working with or the girl that you're working with. Um, I mean, certainly there are. Uh, you know, having worked for a number of years with Shape uh, on Sayich on Witchblade, we kind of have a shorthand in terms of how we work now. That I think we both, you know, we both know what the other guy is looking for mm-hmm. and what the other guy brings to the process. So uh, we can kind of be a little bit more fast and loose with what we do. Um, if I'm working with somebody for the first time, uh, there's probably probably going to be more information in the script, uh, just because, uh, you know, at a bare minimum, the, the writer's job is to give the artist everything he needs to construct the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if the artist wants to ignore it and do something different, you know, within reason, that's fine. You know, that's, uh, you know, that again is part of the collaborative process. I've, you know, I've heard of, uh, certain writers in, in this business that, you know, if the artist deviates from, what they said in the script, well, the artist just has to do it over. Uh, I know. thought we said we weren't going to talk about him. That's as yeah. much as I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly who I mean. <laughs> uh, oh. And my feeling is, you know what? If you're going to be such a prick about making the artist follow exactly what's in your head, draw it to your own damn self. <laughs> you know, the artist is doing this and bringing his or her skills to the job as well. So let them do that. Uh, you know, nobody, nobody in the process is, uh, such a genius that they can't afford to collaborate with the next guy. Cool. Well, there's, there's your advice for the, for the up and coming writers. Is there any other, uh, projects coming up? I think we covered pretty much everything that's coming out right now. Uh, Yeah. I think we've got everything that's in the, uh, 
in the near future. Um, I think uh, the big end of the world release party is early January uh, for Artifacts 13. Uh, I think Shinku number four comes out on the same day, cool. uh, conveniently enough. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for talking to me. That was uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I am happy to do it because this is actually more fun than sitting here doing the work. Well, sure. I want to thank Ron for all of his time. You can make sure to check out his comics. He's got Witchblade number 150, which is out his last of the run. Then there's Artifacts and Magdalena still coming out from Top Cow, as well as Shinku from Image Comics. You can also follow Ron on Twitter. In the meantime, get over to ifanboy.com, and you can comment on this podcast or everything else that's going on in the world of comics and beyond. Well, mostly just the world of comics. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you soon.